The BS Report is a free-flowing conversation that occasionally touches on mature subjects. The BS Report. The BS Report with Ben Simmons. Welcome to the BS Report. Taping this from New York City. I'm in Lorne Michaels' office. Wow. It was your 70th birthday yesterday. Yeah. And you waited until you were 70 to do an official podcast. <laughs> I'm not counting the Alec Baldwin one. That was the really your prop was, for Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin, he came, to, he came in and he was just meeting with me and he said he put his little mic, his little thing down on the table. He said, I'm just going to ask you a few questions from our radio show. And that's how. Yeah, so that's not a podcast. No, it well, was a radio we, show. No, we, I, yeah, I mean, but I'm very supportive of Alec's career. Yes. So, yeah. Well, I still claim first podcast with you. I, well, I there you put go. that no, no, on my first, Wikipedia definitely page. Definitely the first one I was conscious of. Yeah. <laughs> so, 40th season. Yes. Everything started in 1975. I was six years old. Uh-huh. Wow. Your first show was the same day as Game 1 of the Red Sox-Reds World Series, my first favorite team. And the two have been intertwined ever since. Wow. Um, did you think you would – I mean, you didn't even think you were going to be here after – Two years. No, well, I, I, I was sort of only really committed for a year, and um, I think the idea was that we would do something completely different and special every week. So it wasn't so much conceived as a series, uh, other than as a title. And so I think my thing, because I'd never done, you know, work that fast, uh, and I'd never done live. So I think it was that. Every the middle show of three, we were going to be on three weeks uh, a month, and it was a show called Weekend, which was a news magazine, and it was on the fourth uh, Saturday. Yeah, and uh, the thought was, well, maybe we'll do a musical host in the second week, so we because we couldn't possibly write enough for that many weeks, so yeah. we do. Uh, then we get a break with a musical show, and that's what Paul Simon did. The second show, I was going to say that was basically a musical, show. basically a music yeah. show. Although it it did have, did it have update on it? I think it maybe did. I think Paul uh, Chevy was was did on it update. It I think you had like wasn't there like a B sketch? Yeah, because we yeah 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 because yeah, we the bees the very first show with George Carlin, uh, we'd done a, a a sketch called Bee Hospital. Which was in a, a, a part of the studio where the sound wasn't yet. We hadn't figured it out yet. And so you couldn't really hear it much. Yeah. Uh, you could hear it at home, but you couldn't hear it in the studio. And the, the, the joke was just basically a bunch of men in sort of a 50s-style maternity room just pacing, bees pacing. And, uh, uh, and then every now and then a nurse would come out and say, it's a worker. <laughs> Right. Uh, which was, and uh, and it was sort of, and then it was like, and then we went back to it. Now another episode, you know, sit next week for another episode of uh, B Hospital. And the only note I got from the network was, uh, we liked the show, uh, or at least what, what I was being officially told was, we liked the show. The only thing we did, really felt didn't work was uh, B Hospital. And I went, well, you know, it's because the sound, and then, you know, you can see their eyes glazing over because they don't want to hear the, no one wants to hear why something didn't work. So yeah. this next week we had the bees come on with Paul and uh, he'd been at the first show. So uh, it, it was, they came on and he said, I'm sorry, it's cut. It's the only thing that didn't work last week. So we turned them into a sort of relatively sympathetic because they were all disappointed. The costumes, which... Franny Lee had done, which were brilliant, those yeah. three costumes. And then the third show, uh, which was Rob Reiner, we did a sketch late, a restaurant sketch, and um, John Belushi came in as a waiter who was a bee and uh, began taking orders. And then Rob broke reality on that and said that 
it hadn't worked uh, the first show. It hadn't worked the second show. There was, and then Belushi gave a sort of speech that was from uh, the Billy Jack movies. It was right. uh, about you know, uh, and very powerful and very moving. And then gradually, all the people in the restaurant had become replaced by bees, and it was sort of. Uh, it, it had a nice feeling. And then after that, they were sort of launched. And then, but in that sketch, it was like Rob Reiner went a little Hollywood that week, yeah, yeah. right? And so you pulled in a little of the backstage stuff into the sketch. Yes. And also, the it, it was like, we don't have a writing staff like you have on All in the Family. It right. was more about with your Hollywood ways coming here and talking to us, you know, so. Well, that. It was fun, and Rob was very much a part of it, obviously, yeah. I'm so fascinated by the first season. There's been a couple books written, which yeah. we can talk about that you haven't read. But, yes. Um, I, read, cons- I read the part. Well, you don't want to. Yeah. But well, let's talk a, about the that very, first. The very, very first book I read in the uh, the New York Post serialized it, and I read it when it was in the newspaper, yeah. Well, explain quickly why you don't read the books. Um, I think that it, it's hard enough when when things move as quickly as they do in these very sort of intense weeks to sort of remember what actually happened. And I think when you hear other versions of it, you start to uh, – it's just harder to hold on to what you think actually happened. And I think originally I thought I'd remember everything. And now, that, of course. Oh God, how many episodes has it been now? I think I can remember almost every one of the first. We were doing the rundowns on the first episode for the Vintage series. And I yeah. think I knew all of those shows. Really? Yeah. And then I think <laughs> there, there are lots of shows that are memorable. But uh, you, you're, later you're going, did that get cut? Was that on? Or did we cut that address? You're not really sure. Was well, it fair to say when let's so say you're creating that show uh-huh. way back when, right. 1975? Yes, I don't think you could have ever expected it to have become a phenomenon, right? It almost seemed like you saw this empty corner, and it's like there isn't a show yet for my generation. Right? Here's the show. Here it is. In my head. I have all these talented people who haven't really hit it yet. Right. I'm going to create a show around these people, and it'll be a people for people like a show for people like me. Right. All of a sudden, you have 30 million people watching it. Yeah. I think it was more the number of things that had to come together for it to work. Uh, an empty studio in New York because I was in L.A. and they they wanted to do it out of New York. Uh, so you wanted to do it in L.A.? Uh, no, I would. I was working in L.A. and I would have been. I I was sent here. I mean, it was right. like so. It so was, that's lucky. And yeah, all lucky. And also, New York was sort of couldn't have been more on its ass at that point. So it was. Uh, <laughs> There was that. The city was in decay. Uh, the show, the style of variety shows up to that point had been glossy and shiny and polished and trying to be MGM musicals. And we uh, went back to, you know, Eugene Lee's design, which was sort of urban decay. And so we reflected the city that way. We came on after Watergate. The the last helicopter out of Vietnam was just before us. So most of the authority you know, uh, uh, institutional authority had been in some way challenged or discredited. And, and I don't, I think everyone was just preoccupied with other things. And we weren't in a high stakes time period. Uh, we were taking off Johnny Carson reruns. Uh, and so we just sort of, uh, I thought if I could sort of, the big thing about live for me was there was no pilot and I had done pilots out there and they would say, it's not, it won't work in prime time. So that's where sort of uh, Herb Sargent wrote that line about not ready for primetime players because it was like 
well, this isn't for that. This isn't that part of television. This right. is, uh, you know. And so I think that what happened was uh, with no pilot, the audience would see it the same night that the network saw it. So all those things of you can't do that on television, which there was a lot of rules, uh, sort of got blown away because the network reaction, which was... Uh, it was the World Series was going on. They were distract, you know, uh, and it was you know such a small universe because it was basically two and a half networks. Um, the reaction was mostly negative, I think, internally on the Sunday. Really? Yeah, and then I think on the Monday because I don't think anybody knew what I was going to be doing except Dick Eversole. Uh And on the Monday, the ratings came in and they were fine. And you had like a crappy New York Times review where the guy had only yeah. seen half the show. Right? Yeah, that was the second show. He oh, the saw the Paul one. Simon yeah, yeah. show and he, he uh, John O'Connor, and he wrote it. He later apologized for it, but he wrote a review that because of a mix-up on the Long Island Railroad, he hadn't gotten home till you know twelve uh, twenty, and from what he could see, it was mostly a music show with Simon and Garfunkel. Yet another Simon and Garfunkel reunion. And I went, no, they haven't. Been, uh, yeah, they, you know, like, been not, yeah, not bad yeah, one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was, um, and it was sort of nice to be dismissed because then there, it wasn't. It, it, we were just sort of left alone. There was no, um, and I think in the first six, seven shows. Uh, all of whom, all of the people who'd agreed to host it, were people I'd known, or you know, uh, uh, Candy Bergen and and Lily Tomlin and uh, and Richard Pryor and Paul Simon were all and Rob Reiner were all people that I uh, had met with or knew before the show. So they had the most to lose because all I could do was describe sort of what I was going to do. They, there was no show to see. Right. Uh, the fourth he, show was, the Candace Bergen show was the one that started to feel like the actual yeah, show that yeah, it became, And that's right? show four. Yeah. And that's the one that looks like the show now. Yeah. And I sort of, I've, I've said this before, but I knew I had the ingredients. I just didn't have the recipe. I, I knew, you know, part of it was what can I do that will keep me interested uh, in, in, you know, I, I just was like, there are all these things I want to do. I want to do comedy. I want I want to have music as this kind of music wasn't on television. I want to do the news because uh, I'd done that in Canada and I sort of wanted to do that. And I wanted to, uh, but and the cast I think were originally conceived as people who would uh, support the host, but it right. was always going to be a different host because as a writer, there's only so many times you can solve the problem of what Sonny will say to share. In any kind of fresh way. And yeah. so a different host every week, uh, which was, had, it was, there was a show called Hollywood Palace, which did that, you know, which had a different host every week. So there were, there were a lot of ideas that were, had just been in variety shows. And then I think the thing that made it ours was that we were doing it. So it was when I, I, I got the go ahead to do the show on April 1st, uh, 1975 and th they gave me three months to round people up and there wasn't anybody that I hired that I didn't hire so I met with I read so many writing submissions well, so I the met, word got out that yeah this and, was happening yeah and then uh, but no one knew what it was including me and so it was I just sort of want I had this sort of test of all people that I could be in a room with because I figured to be spending a lot of time with them, and um, 
and also people you would have dinner with because you're going to be spending a lot of time in restaurants. So it was uh, gradually a team was assembled, and then we had three months of pre-production from July till we went on in October. Well, wait. So what was your – so let's say you're out to dinner with Dan yeah. Aykroyd. Right, yeah. What's Dan your, Aykroyd had been on my show in Canada, so, so I So what's your pitch him. to him in a sentence? You're saying, no, I want you to move to New York to do this show. What are you saying to him? I think, I think everybody sort of smelled that there was this – a new thing happening and an opportunity. And Danny had been on my show in Canada, and uh, – I'd seen him when I was living at the Marmont when I was out in California in the in the early 70s. Uh, and we'd always sort of stayed in touch. Uh, he'd gone on to Second City after the show we did in Canada. Because uh, Second City was not was only in Chicago when I... Uh, and You just knew. It moved to Chicago. It moved to Toronto after I left. Um, and um, Chevy, famously, I met on a line for... Uh, a Python film in L.A. Um, Lorraine I'd worked with on the Lily Tomlin shows that I'd done. Um, uh, Jane Curtin came in and auditioned. Uh, Gilda I'd known in Toronto um, and had seen in Godspell and kind of knew her from similar backgrounds. Uh, and in Belushi, everybody knew Belushi. He was yeah, that kind of a legend. And, and also, you know, uh, uh, John and, uh, you know, uh, Chevy had worked with Belushi on, 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 uh, in the Lampoon show. And uh, Gilda had worked with him as well. And uh, they were, you know, in my first meeting with John, which was in this office, he came in and uh, uh, and he said, you know, I don't, I don't do television. And I said, uh, well, then I, I guess we're good because this is going to be very much a television show. And he said, uh, no, I, but, you know, I just mean I would not normally do television, but I understand what you're doing. And I go, no, 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 this is a television show, and, yeah. and I can't have anyone on it who has any ambivalence whatsoever. There's way too much at stake, and I need, I need to know that the people who are there are completely uh, focused on it and, and uh, want to be involved. So we got off to a bumpy start. And then Chevy... But you made him audition, though, right? I made every... Uh, he the did the samurai? Bu- yeah, no. What's interesting about it is there were no auditions. Everyone... We did screen tests, which are now called auditions. Got it. Everyone had already had the job. But uh, with uh, John, um, Chevy and Michael O'Donoghue and Gilda kept saying, you know, I think you just have to cut him some slack and, you know, whatever. Anyway, they convinced me. and But my first instinct was that he was going to be trouble. And, of course... But you can get away with one troublemaker on the cast. Yeah, you know, no, exactly. It's like a basketball um, team. But you just we can't hadn't, have two. Yes, and we hadn't had fame yet, So that which is a magnifying force. So, uh, yeah. for, you know, and I wasn't worried about him being, you know, working with me or anything like that. I just thought um, he was going to go his own way. But isn't it crazy you think back 40 years... Uh-huh. You have a seven-person cast. Yes. Four of the people on that show are four of the best cast members in the history of the show. Belushi, no, no Chevy, yeah. um, Ackroyd, and Gilda. Who no I still think Gilda – I mean you're, you're not going to decide best female. Yeah. But Gilda's in the conversation for best Without female question. cast member ever. Without question. And yeah. you just randomly get all four of those. Like think about 
I don't know, it's almost like a draft class in the NFL or something where it's just like the perfect year to want a quarterback. Yeah, and also probably no one else was looking for them. True. You know, so, uh, but they were, were, we were, all the people who were doing what we were doing knew about each other, I think, you know, or had heard about each other. Jane had been doing, had done a show in, in, uh, uh, in Boston, uh, which was called The Premise, I think. And Lorraine was part of The Groundlings. And mm. she'd been on a Lily Tomlin show I'd done. And uh, so it kind of, it was a, it wasn't quite early Christians, but it was right. like people who kind of did this kind of work and, and knew about each other. You mentioned fame. Yeah. And this is in both of the books, which you haven't read. But, sure. Um, there's a great chapter about Chevy in one of those books about what fame did to him and I don't think people realize how many people watch the show in 75 because there's no cable, there's no internet, right. there's no video games, there's nine channels, right. and the show's becoming a phenomenon. All of a sudden, you have, you, go, you have these people who have been anonymous their whole life, and in how many weeks did that change? Seven? Yeah, and also, we were in a little bubble because we were always just here at the office. Right. So, uh, and Chevy was, you know, Chevy was the person I wrote with the most, and it would be him and I and Michael O'Donoghue in a room... And that first Christmas, uh, the show that won the Emmy that year came right after Christmas, which was at Elliot Gould. And we didn't have any place to go for Christmas, so we just came to the office and we wrote that show. So it was we were. It was only when people started going out more, you know, leaving the city, that there was any sense that it was bubbling up to the yeah. way. And Danny and John, uh, Jan Winter got them to uh, write a... You know, uh, an article traveling because Danny loved driving cross country. So he got John, who was not, who went along with it, but preferred more comfortable forms of travel. <laughs> but he, uh, they, they would stop places, you know, like small towns, and people knew who they were. And so it was just that was one of the first kind of signals that it was happening out in the country. And then Chevy got on New York Magazine, like after like the eighth show. Yeah, no, April. I think it's April. Or, but it, but it was a weird cover because it was. Um, it said the next Johnny Carson. That was the cover. Yeah. And I don't think he'd ever thought that that's what he wanted to be, but there was no other comparison in late night. So if you were going to be that, well, that's what you would want to be. Whereas I think uh, he wanted to go where he ended up going, which was movies and uh, and comedies. Yeah. Yeah. So you thought, you're going through that first season, you're thinking like, I just want to get through this year. Yeah. Then you win the Emmy. Yeah. And then I you're think, thinking, think hey, second year, year would be fun. Not to be immodest, but I think I won three Emmys that year. Cause I, three Emmys? Yes, because it was... By the for the show. But. No, well, two for the show, for writing and, and best show, and then one that was for a Lily Tomlin show that I'd done the year before. Oh, wow. So it was like a weird, you know, almost too much to go from that to that. And you guys were like the toast of, the, I'm sure, the Emmys. You were yeah, like, the, well, everyone I think, talked well, to you. Remember that my Emmy was given to me by Milton Berle. So it gives you a sense of where we are in history. Not only that, but he was very reluctant to move aside uh, when I came to the podium because since he enjoyed being on camera. So I had to kind of lean in to accept. But it was a – we were just from another – you know, we we looked ragged and we were from another generation. So – and there weren't many people like us in the Academy or uh, in that world. On Saturday nights – when we went on the air on CBS was All in the Family, MASH, Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart, Carol Burnett. That was Saturday night? That was Saturday night on CBS. Wow, it was loaded. That's what I'm saying. So it was the number one night of television. Yeah. 
Uh, so everyone was watching television. And we were this other thing that came on at 1130 after sort of the network went home. So when did you settle, when that infrastructure of the show, that really, the Candace Bergen was the first one, but when did you know, like, this is it, I'm doing this, this is how it's going to look? I think, um, I think we just kept trying to blow it up every week. I think it was just, um, that was the, that's what we believed in. Uh, I remember John Belushi did not want to do the samurai again. I, I had... Richard Pryor didn't want much to come into the office, so uh, I had uh, he, I went and worked with him, and then he, we were in a rehearsal space, and I had John come in and do his Toshiro Mifune impression, uh, which became the Samurai, and uh, Richard loved it, and uh, and he wanted to do it as well. So we had sort of uh, that and a Samurai Hotel, which Tom Schiller wrote, and then. When Buck Henry came, which was probably the 11th or 12th show, he said, uh, I love that samurai thing. And so we did, I called John in, I said, you want to do it again? And he went, okay. And uh, But it was a big thing for us that we were going to repeat something. So Was there resistance with some of the writers? No, I think it was like, it was Buck Henry, who we all worshipped. So yeah. it was, uh, and, and he announced why Bell did Samurai Delicatessen. And that became the second samurai. But we didn't. We thought that was we were making an exception. I don't think we thought of things as hits or not hits. Uh, we thought it was our job to just keep plowing through and come up with a new show every week. And when we hit our first kind of dud show, uh, which I, is not worth naming, but oh come the, on, oh, which one was it? It's uh, been forty it's, years. It's just forty tell years us. ago. Well, we did we did four shows in a row, which we had never done in January of that year, and we did. Elliot Gould, Buck Henry, and then uh, 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 Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. And then we did a Dick Cavett show. The Dudley Moore was the Kill Every Way I See episode. Wasn't that the, the Garrett Moore yeah, song? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. That's my only credited song. Um, <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote the lyrics, yeah. Um, but the... Uh, and uh, no, it was... We were just exhausted, and the show didn't have much. Yeah. And we sort of went, oh, my God, because... Up to that point, we were just on a roll, and then we just hit a wall, and it wasn't good, and we were, oh. And then everybody got felt bad about that, and you wear, this is, you know, when in the 70s, you'd wear it for at least two or three days after. If it didn't work, and, and my eye is, I tend to only see the mistakes, so I never leave going, wow, that was awesome. I kind of go... Yeah, and, and that we had a late camera cut there. Yeah. And also, it was only phone in those days. That was the only way you'd hear from people. So um, if people would call on Sunday and, uh, and go, I, you know, I saw the show last night. And I go, oh, yeah. And uh, they go, um, I, thought, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, no, th thanks. Uh, so did you think that thing, you know, that that was funny? And I go, well, no, we, it, I mean, uh, Danny came in and the camera cut was late and he came out on a different foot. And so the rhythm of it changed and then that, you know, and then it fell apart. And because we didn't have a soundtrack, you know, laugh track or whatever, you, you could hear that at home. And the answer to it was, do you not, do you think it's funny? Isn't the right, it was that it didn't work. So when something didn't work, you can't really explain uh, that your intent was higher. And you can say, you know, worked uh, 
uh, you know, two hours earlier at dress rehearsal, it killed or else it wouldn't have made it into it. But in those days, they didn't tape dress rehearsal. So uh, for fear that the network would, because we were oh, fighting a lot of censorship yeah. battles at the time. And I thought if I was, if they could actually put on a show that had already gone on, they would. So... How often does that happen where the dress rehearsal version is better than the live version? I think we're better at compensating for it. Like last week with Woody, I gave a note in the meeting of just like that was a very hot dress rehearsal audience. And it's probably not going to be as hot on air. So just adjust to that. Go in knowing that. Do not bank on those laughs that they're going to be there. And uh, But, you know, for, for most people can adjust, but but... For people who, for whom it's their first or second season, it's they get knocked over. It's a big wave. Right. Yeah. Back to when you were talking about how getting worn out after the four episodes. Yeah. So Smaggle told me this once. And yeah. Seth, and Seth Meyers told me this once, too. Yeah. The year after the strike, uh-huh. there was a strike in like 87 or 88. 89. 89. And then yeah. the year after, it was like one of the best SNL seasons ever. Yeah. And then the best season of Sesh year, I think, was also the year after the strike, and that was the 0809 season with right. T. And he said, both of them said they thought there was a real reason for that because they got people got removed out of the show. They didn't do as many. They missed doing it. Right. They had more ideas, and then it was almost like this unfairly loaded next season. Do you agree with that? Uh, I, 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 of course, that's the way they remember it and think about it, of course. I, I, I tend to... There's a mantra that I have, which is fatigue is your friend. There's a point at which, you know, in in anything artistic, or at least from my perspective, the critical faculty can overwhelm the creative faculty. The talking yourself out of the idea. Yes, you think, yeah, well, I I mean, I, you know, uh, you can think of all the reasons. Robert Smigel, I think, had a long discussion with Mike Myers before he submitted Wayne's World for read-through, saying it had been done, you know, Bill and Ted and... You know, Spiculi and uh, and you go, yeah, their version. You know what I mean? Yeah. But somebody can maybe figure it out in a, in a different way, and it's not. And and so we're a rough group of people in terms of those kind of standards. So yeah, you know, so and so did that or whatever. So, but the idea that you would do it differently or that let's see what happens when it hits an audience and how they react to it, and uh, so. When you're tired and exhausted, you just write it, you know, and all sorts of different kind of work comes out. Third and fourth shows are always that. And you kind of go, we got nothing left. And then somebody takes a chance on something that they would never, if they were cautious or smart, would never have attempted. And those kind of things are what you remember now as hits. That's so funny you talk about that because that's how usually I write my column. I either do it when I'm early in the morning yeah. or late at night because I want to. I don't want to be fully awake. No, as it, weird as that sounds, no, like I, I, I feel like I, I take understand. more chances when because I'm because you groggy. just go. No, is that the right? You're stopping on the verb. Yep. And you know when you go like I let's you know uh, when right. uh, uh, when Randy Newman and I were in a room with Steve Martin and we were writing Three Amigos. Steve, who was just better at it than we were, because yeah. we were legal pad guys, and he was already on a word processor, he'd say, you know, like, uh, movies are rewritten. Let's just let's just get it down. And we'd go, you can't write that. I mean, you know, they, they, we would want to argue about the language of describing how somebody entered a scene, you know. Yeah. And uh, he'd go, let's not worry about that, and just get through it. And then you go through it, and then you fix it, and then you look at it, and you take out a paragraph that you thought 
Oh, right. We don't need that. And I was agonizing over that. So that thing of, of using a machete through the undergrowth and just carving a path and just <laughs> getting it done is really important. And it's hard if you if you can talk yourself out of it. So but, I've always wondered yeah. why the infrastructure of the show uh-huh. hasn't really changed from how you do it during the week for 40 years. But yeah. now, I've, now I feel like I have kind of part of the answers. Because you have people here late at night. Yeah, yeah. So, tonight, so tonight. you intentionally want them groggy. No, no. I think <laughs> it, it, in the first year, by the way, we were always out of here by 9 or 10. We, because restaurants were way too important to us because most of us, it was the first time we had money. So uh, we would be, uh, there's a famous picture of uh, Chevy and I and John and Danny at Elaine's in the kitchen. And you go, yeah, because we'd go to Elaine's. Uh, later in the next generation, uh, a, a more dorm sensibility began to take over and people like started working through the night. Writers will put off writing as long as possible. And you could say, and we made a lot of attempts at organization in the first year. Uh, mm. And Audrey, uh, Audrey Pert Dickman, who was uh, uh, the original associate producer and Chevy used to say actual producer, she'd come into this office and go, we really need this script. You have to give us the script. You know, they, they can't possibly have it ready for read-through if you don't hand it over. And we'd go, give us 10 more minutes. And so all of those things of we should say the deadline is Tuesday at 6. But if read-through starts Wednesday at 3, a writer will work till 1 o'clock that afternoon until it's actually... Until, and, and deadline writers are a different kind of writer. And you put it off as long as you possibly can. And... And you have to know your brain is always working. Right. It's 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 preparing whilst while sending signals that it has nothing is also preparing and something then happens. And uh but but they will use every minute that they can. Well now I'm sure email, texting. Yeah. And servers, <laughs> all yeah, that yeah. stuff. Being able to forward documents to each other. You're yeah. doing it in the seventies, it's basically you're typing out one draft. Yeah, and then, or writing it up by hand. But right. but you know what's interesting is tonight. Uh, because I'm, as you pointed out right at the beginning, older, um, I <laughs> I will leave around three uh, because uh, there's a certain respect for my uh, advanced age. But the three younger, in the morning? Yeah. But the younger ones will go right through. Uh, and you'll see time on pieces at like 6 a.m., 7 yeah. a.m., 11, you know, 11 a.m. So people go round the clock and as long as they get it in on time we read it uh so the fo- we we now cut it off at 40 although occasionally it goes down sometimes we read 40 to 50 pieces because you don't really know and and if it comes and if the piece that everyone buys into and laughs at and that played the best was written by the brand new writer we still do it yeah. Uh, so the meritocracy thing has never changed. And the other thing about live, which I like to point out, is it's the only form where everyone is necessary till the end. If the musician doesn't come in on cue, you're dead. If the prop guy doesn't hand you your prop just before you go on, if that wig doesn't fit perfectly, if the person doesn't race you across the studio to make that change in time, if the writer didn't get the changes to the cards, if the control room doesn't have the notes. So everyone is simultaneously on it and working as a team. So they, there's a kind of, uh, it may be a pseudo-egalitarian thing, but it is egalitarian. And because of that, it feels very much like a joint effort, like a team. 
See and, if the team puts the energy of yeah. everybody's got to get this and done. And also that. that you can't give it all up at dress rehearsal. You have to give up enough that it gets chosen, but not so much that you don't have the ability to take it to the next level on the air show. And so people, you know, I mean, think of the fact that you, this is a place where you have to get your metabolism and your energy. You're peaking at 1130 on a Saturday night in a skyscraper in Manhattan in a, you know, on the eighth floor. And uh, you have to feel completely comfortable uh, being funny and being yourself in that thing. And that takes time to get used to because it's there's no other place you can rehearse that's like that so like you had when you added jay farrow to the cast yeah and he did this killer obama yeah i remember asking somebody who was affiliated with the show i won't say yeah. who but like well why wouldn't they just give him to obama it's like amazing and he's yeah. like first second year guys you didn't you don't want you it's 11 30 you're staring in the camera you're doing a cold open like you don't just learn how to do that no and also the cold, to settle the audience in that cold opening spot it's very rough when you put somebody in there who a new you get you can get mugged there it's it's a dangerous spot so they have to the, two weeks ago uh we did uh on rock show uh, Chris Rock show, which was yeah. uh, Chris was he was know, great. brilliant, just yeah. brilliant. And but on that show, uh, we opened with a uh, uh, Bobby doing Chris Christie and and uh, Cecily was doing Megan Kelly and then uh, and then Kate played the nurse, uh, the Ebola nurse, yeah, yeah. in Maine. But that first part, it was an audience that was there to hear Prince, there to hear Chris Rock. No one was buying into a Chris Christie uh, uh, Fox News interview. And Bobby just was there, completely present. And whether they were laughing or not, he was playing it with strength and and looked like he was in charge, as was Cecily. And then Kate came in because she had the better part and just killed it at the end. But you sort of saw, right. You veteran just, veteran experience. Exactly. And also just that thing of, no, you have to be solid. It may or may not work, but they're not going below a certain level. They're not going to fall apart, that's for sure. And another thing, I think Hater told me this, was the be- the people who do the best on the show are the people that go 110%, even if they're playing the waiter who's just bringing the tray. 100%. So you agree with that? 100%. That's the best part of the ensemble thing. And also, nothing makes a cast member, particularly one who's on, on his or her game, happier than when I say at the meeting, you're going into that. Uh, so-and-so can't make the change, so you're going to play uh, the, the father in that. You have to, you know. Right. And they go, all right, show me the tape. They look at dress... They get they go down they get they get that costume they get that they run down the cards and then they're on so they're going without a net and they they're going in and they just they love that thing because they've already gone through every other thing you can be frightened of this is like the last thing you're jumping you're not sure whether the parachute has been in any but way checked a couple of times you must have like I remember Kristen Wiig I remember watching that first show being like oh wow. She's she's going to be no keeper question. like so yeah. you there must be there sometimes you speed are, it ahead. Oh, one hundred percent. There are people who are built for it right away. Dana Carvey was one. Kristen was one. Yeah. Uh, Andy Samberg, weirdly enough, uh, came in fully formed, and and then I like you, that fully formed. Yeah, yeah. And then you sort of see people like Fred Armisen, who came in kind of as Ferrisito, and you kind of. Uh, and where he got to, I mean, you know. You didn't see that coming or you did? No, I just think every year he just came back, you know, like, um, I, he 
just kept growing and growing. Jimmy Fallon, the same. You kind of see they can get by on whatever it was that got them here. And if they're still doing it six months later, it's not going to happen. Because you're either you're either bored with doing it and or you've been challenged and now you're working with another group of people, either as writer, you're working with different writers, you're working with, and suddenly you're playing parts in other people's things and you start to find, like Rosanna Rosanna Dana, which is a, a good example of this, Michael O'Donoghue wrote a Have It Your Way Burger King commercial in which, needless to say, the thing's... We're not yep. the conventional hamburger stuff. Um, and Gilda was, because he'd written a Puerto Rican uh, uh, waitress, I think. And uh, and she was doing, she was sitting there in that wig, in the Rose Amazon wig. Uh, she had two lines in the sketch. But she was sitting with Dallas White Bell, and they were riffing, and they, it was like the uh, name game thing, Bill Banner, you know, and they yeah. they kind of, and then the next week that character came on. So it was a pure accident. She wasn't aiming for that. It was that somehow she was in a wig in somebody else's piece, and she thought, there's more to this than that. Right. And um, And then if the audience, if they're on their game and the audience is already with them, they can take the audience a little further than the audience would have wanted to go well like Stefan was a character in a sketch yeah. once yes and then a weekend update kind of morphed into that and then and then it and then the boredom within the team doing it is such that Mulaney did a game with uh Bill where they would change things he'd surprise air yeah and the cue yeah. card or so whatever. and yeah. that's where the laugh is from because he can't believe that he's being blindsided by this and that Mulaney thought of the one thing that could make him laugh and break <laughs> so there are a lot of other things that go on just because you want to keep it fresh and alive and uh but you've come a little bit around on that because initially one of the things about the show is you never wanted them to do carol burnett um, break up. up during a sketch and be so pleased with themselves. Think, I thought, yeah, I thought it was. But now, when it easy. happens organically, you don't. If it, mind it. it happens, and even then, when it happened organically, it was people who never broke suddenly lost it a little bit, you right. know. And Jimmy, who's uh, who got you know beat up over it, Jimmy never laughed except Jimmy is one of those people who loves to. He, you see it on his on the Tonight Show, show yeah. you know. He just is somebody who, if somebody's being really, really funny, he steps back and becomes the audience again, you know. Right. So I'd say, even though the infrastructure is the same, the two things that I think that have changed over the years. Uh huh. We talked about one recurring sketches. Like sometimes, like do you think sometimes you you almost rely on the recurring sketches too much? Because oh, well, as a viewer, I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, 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 no, I know no, this I know. one. I, I, I personally, uh, you know, there there are things. Uh, like, what's up with that? Where you go... Well, that one I actually defend. No, that's <laughs> yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah. So there are ones where you go... And, and uh, in people's memories of what we did a lot of, uh, you know, when uh, like Coneheads, which seemed like they were on all the time. I think you did like six, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of those kind of things where you think it's that... I, I don't know how many times we did Stefan. Yeah, I don't know either. Yeah, me neither. But I'm saying it didn't seem like we wore I remember, like, in the late 80s, like, you definitely, like, there was a lot of Hans and Franz, Church yes. Lady. Like, you had, you relied yes. on some of those. Yes. But I think Church Lady was one of those ones where you could put uh, Sean Penn in it. 
And yeah. uh, she could go out. You'd want to see that. It was like a Mike Wallace interview. You'd a variation want, yeah, of yeah. the same yeah. premise. So you had that. And then and the, I, and okay. also there is. OK, so we, you, we cover the rookie years and they're not who they're going to be, but they're on their way. Then there's a, a period of plateau where they are just they on their game and they're brilliant. And every week there's sparks coming off them and you can't wait to see it again. And. And then, like the career year, yeah. And yeah. then uh, the world takes notice, and uh, the bigger world, which is Hollywood, comes in, and somebody discovers someone, as Tina Fey used to say, on Channel Four, and uh, you kind of go uh, right, and then they go, "He'd be perfect for that," because the industry has always watched the show, so you sort of see people being pulled. But you know, I mean, uh, uh, John Belushi doing 1941 was flying back and forth, and there was no way I could stand in his way of, of doing it. But normally people only worked the summer. That was the, sort of the brilliance of the schedule is you had three and a half months off, you could do something else. But then the amount of money and career building and um, and the idea that there would be life after this and that this is like the NCAA and you're going on to the NBA. Or, well, plus they have the history of the other people who had done it. Yeah. In the 70s, nobody yeah. had had the history yet. Yeah, and well, you know, Dana Carvey always says, so tell me anyone who was funnier after they left SNL. Uh, and there are lots of examples. I'm not, I'm not, uh, he, what I'm getting at is he's trying to make an, another kind of point, which is the looseness and the, uh, that period before people turn pro, Right, you're uh, catching them at the perfect time. Yeah, is yeah, a yeah. kind of a, a more and for me, working with people when all that matters is the work. And once people have kids and once people have you know careers, and they're playing not to lose, um, that's a different mindset. You're not going to go out there and do something completely silly or that is risky because you have advisors. And when you have advisors, you're not the only one in the room anymore. So, well, it seemed like that changed in the early '90s where. A lot of those cast members translated so easily to movies. Yeah. And it became a thing like, oh, the SNL movie. And, and it almost seemed like the show is becoming a stepping stone yeah. to Hollywood movies. I, I, you know what I, mean? it, I think, again, that was sort of a received wisdom that was unexamined. It was a media. Yeah, it was yeah, a media. I, I did it with thing. Wayne's World because I'd always wanted to do. Uh, Three Amigos was my sort of first attempt at it, but I wanted to do with Wayne's World, I wanted to make. A Marx Brothers movie, which, you know, because uh, Duck Soup is still. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I went, I bet you we could, you know, no one knows whether Fredonia won the war or not. Uh, if you can just do a hard comedy with uh, and just keep it moving as fast as possible and with as many laughs as you can. The Zuckers had done it with the airplane and all that. Yep. And I went, uh, and so we went out there and we shot that movie, I think, in. I want to say 24 days. We were writing, you know, the night before. We did it like the show. Yeah. Uh, and um, and it was, you know, incredibly successful. And so that spawned Get Me Characters. And um, But as you said, Belushi yeah. did movies in the 70s. Oh, yeah, yeah. Eddie Murphy did three movies when he yeah, was on the totally, show. Like, this was totally. something that happened for 40 yes, years. Yes, And also, but I think it was taking characters from the show, uh was I get like I guess thing. that was the novelty in the night. And the weird one is the movie Pat, 
which I didn't do. You get blamed for that one. Always get, yeah, they always mention it. And I go, no, I didn't do it, but I, but Disney wanted to, uh, Michael Osmond wanted to make that movie, and he wanted to make, and for Julia, it was a huge opportunity. You know, when I, so I said, well, I'm not going to do it, and I'm, I'm, I don't have time, and I, it's not what I want to be doing, and, uh, but go ahead, do it. And it didn't make any difference, because everybody just, it just gets lumped in as right. something I did, and, uh, so that so on the record, you were not involved with this, Pat. And you're and not you know, on the and, and for pitch. somebody whose career worked out pretty well, I, I'm not. Uh, and and Julia's, uh, you know, uh, incredibly talented, and it was her movie, and and I'm sure that it got roughed up for reasons that had to do in the order it was released, as opposed to what what it was. Right. But um, there are lots of things that um, are either ahead of their time or behind their time, or uh, the styles changed. And you sort of, um, I don't know, you know, like when Tina wanted to do uh, Mean Girls, there was no hesitation on my part that that would be a movie I'd want. You know, like yeah. it, for me, it's always about who who am I going to work with and who who's the creative team and group of people? Because I'm one of the things I can do is put together, you know, hopefully people who are strong in all those positions. Well, and also, I'm sure you had writers take off, too, in the show. Yeah. They're getting a lot of projects. 100%, yeah. The other thing that's changed with the infrastructure, it does seem like the celebrity impression thing. This uh-huh. is something I've noticed. Like, I, you know, I was working yeah, yeah. on this long yeah. piece that I still haven't handed in yet about the 40 years of sketches. Yeah. And you can see it kind of changing. I think in the early 90s, you started doing more celebrity impression kind of group ensemble stuff because it was kind right. of a way to use everyone on the cast, right? Yes. And also and things became... like uh, uh, where Phil would do uh, Frank Sinatra. and you yeah, know, like a, yeah. I think that it also is times in which there are a lot of celebrities in the culture. And then it, it go you go through a period where I don't know who you do now. Do you know what, what I mean? mean? There's like, well, because almost, they're almost self-parodies of yeah, themselves like sometimes. It, it, yeah, I mean, yeah. in the sense that it's not... Uh, like Jay can do Denzel brilliantly and all that, but you can't. There's only so many. You you wouldn't turn him into a character. It's just an impression. But if you're doing, um, I know on one of the recent shows, well, I'm not turning around. Um, there was one that we did. Well, even the the one we did last week and the duets. Yep. Um, is celebrity impressions. You know, but they're musicians, celebrity impressions. You get to use a lot of the cast members, all that stuff. Yeah, and and also we're really good at wigs, you know, so they can look like them. So, because I was thinking, like, there's one sketch. Jane, Jane Hooks is the waitress, the famous Jane Hooks waitress sketch. Yeah, and Hartman and Kevin Nealon are just at the table as these two dumbasses. Yeah, and then Alec Baldwin is hitting on. It's all like innuendo stuff. Right, yeah, and it would seem like. Those would be the sketches that would make you the happiest? Yes. Is that a fair statement? 100%, yes. Yeah. So is there like a – do you almost feel a pressure to kind of push people to do more of those or you don't even think about I, it? I think even to, to put it on a sort of grandest level, you know like anybody who runs an ensemble and has to put on a show all the time, going back to the Globe Theater, yeah. you, you know, Falstaff's in a play that – you know, he doesn't really belong in because you know that it was really popular with the audience. And there's going to be an overwhelming pressure to do something that already worked because the audience wants more of it. They come and, in, they want Stefan. And the, yeah. And yeah. so you can't do Stefan every week because you burn it out. And also because you can't keep the writing level up. So maybe you go one step beyond, maybe you do one where you give in to that demand. But, yeah. you know, as you well know, we play a season. 
So the September shows are different than the November shows or different than the February shows. The May shows bear almost no relationship to the September shows. The cast have either grown and they're no longer that that those people and they're bored with what they were doing then. Yeah. So at its core, at least I'll speak for myself, at my core, I'm restless. So A, it's not going to be good enough. And also B, it's like that. I get the enemy is boredom. So doing something you've already done, even if you do it well, I'm sure that for a song singer songwriter to sing that same song over and over. Now, if you're, if you were really good at it, you have a lot of them so you can mix it up. But if you only had three hits and you know, you're going to be singing them for the rest of your life, that's a, um, yes, you have to make it fresh every night and yes, the audience wants it. So you do it. And that's where you stopped, but hopefully you don't, in our show, we don't have to stop because the casts change, and and so you just keep pushing it. And, and as I said, almost everything new that comes out is sort of an accident. Mm. It's almost you know, there's brilliant writing, and and you know when uh, Jack Handy did Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer for uh, for Phil Hartman, it was a moment where Phil Hartman was the perfect person to be doing that, and. Um, and so we're always at, at Read Through Tomorrow. There'll be things from cast. There'll be things from writers. There'll be things from brand new writers. Uh, there'll be things that the host wanted and worked on. You know, um, Cameron, who's this week and who's done it. I think the last time she did Cameron it was, yeah, yeah, she did it ten years ago. And you sort of go, right? There's this, and and she can play that, but she. It's better if she plays this now than what what she did ten years ago, whatever. And right. and so. I, I think you're just constantly adjusting, and you play the hand you get. Right. So that week, uh, you know, uh, if we were doing, you know, uh, a show and uh, they decided to invade Iraq in 91 or 92, uh, and, you know, uh, Downey did that press conference piece with uh, Colin Powell and just the idea of telling – the media wanting to know where our troops would be and not, you know. Yeah. And it was like, um, right, well, no, the military were always bad. Uh, the press were always right. So the idea that you're going to change the way people look at something, which is the best thing we can do, um, is also is too important to the core group of people who are here. But then there's also, they want hits. And uh, so so it's almost got, like you're doing a concert. Yeah. You're you got, gonna play. You're gonna play Miami 2017, but right. you're also gonna play. And when I uh, at the end of the first season, I because uh, I'd already sort of committed to it and was sort of excited about doing it. I did a documentary on the Beach Boys, and we followed them around for six weeks, seven weeks. Chevy and and John and Danny were the writers of it, and uh, and it was sort of fun. And I, it was California, and we went to all sorts of places, and um, but we. There were concerts in Oakland. There were concerts in, in, you know, different parts of California. But they had, uh, they'd been together 15 years. They had, I don't know, 20 number one songs right. that they could do. But whenever they came to the part of the uh, the show where they go in there, here's the songs from our new album, you just sit and sort of see the audience desert and go to the refreshment area and, and all of that. And it isn't... You can't judge it. It's not about them. It's not about. It's just the nature of. Oh, here's the thing we really want to see. Mm. I remember when I saw that uh, the first Jurassic Park, and there was that scene where um, 
uh, what's his name, the the uh, scientist, the oh, what have I done scene where he's taking ice cream out and he's talking. The theater I was in cleared because people realized there would be no dinosaurs for another five minutes. So it was a good time to sort of get something to eat or go to the bathroom. And, you know, it's people know what they want and what the, and us meeting expectations, either from critics or from the audience, you know, the audience is all that really matters. Can and you the, hold them? Yeah. And as you said, in, in the 70s, you had phone calls and maybe a newspaper write yeah. up. Rolling Stone loved you guys immediately. So right, you didn't yeah. have to worry about them. Yeah. Then the Internet comes along mid-late 90s. Right. And within early 2000s, now you have message boards. Now you have... Yes. Recappers. Yes. You have all these people who right. think they're smarter than the show. Or, I'm sure or, I was one of them a couple times. Or feel passionately about it. There's also so many different kinds of comedy on the show. Yeah. So if you're doing big, dumb, broad thing, um, uh, then it, it uh, you know, the people who want, you know, smart verbal comedy or content, you know, uh, if you're doing character stuff and it's a character that they other people don't like, you know, it's so the whole point of the show is it's a variety show and it's a variety of styles and elements. So you you hate that music, but you you're now you're waiting for update because you're hoping your favorite character will be on update. Uh, but we have a new cast. So we have no favorite characters. So now you're going to have to live through meeting a lot of new people that uh, are going to be doing comedy for you. You know, it's like. Do you really? like those seasons more, or do you not? No, dig? I think you. There's just, just, uh, you know, there's the where it's all uphill, and then there's the point where it's it becomes decadent because it's people have lost, you know, are still attached, but their mind is elsewhere. And uh, well, those are probably your least favorite seasons, those, right? When everybody's got one foot out yeah, the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's a weird thing now. But what's different about the show? now as opposed to the three network period is that you get somebody like uh fred or bill or Kristen or jason who you know are, are here for most of a decade and they just get better and better and better and they love the show the work is now considered of of as high an order as being in a hit movie or being in so uh the respect that they now get means that they can stay longer and uh continue to i mean Kristen. Wig, God bless her, did uh, Bridesmaids. And then and, came back. And then came back. Um, you know, that was, you know, John Belushi did Animal House, came back. But I, I think people uh, now believe the work is really important. And I think they understand on some level that this is their family. Do you feel any attachment at all to the seasons when you weren't on the show? Because it's—I I, I, I mean, Eddie was there that whole time, and yeah, you missed I know. it. A hundred percent, yeah. And and um, but at the same time, you created the show and you created the infrastructure. Yeah, to have no, it no, succeed, no. But so I, mean, I had nothing to do with his success, and he had, you know, and he did and though in a weird way. Well, in on some level, but not, you know, what I mean by it is there is a thing. The show's still made by hand. And whoever's hands are making it, that's that's the show that week. And, Were you and, watching it going, oh, no, my I, God, I, this guy's I, a phenomenon. This is the same as my not reading the books. I, you I didn't never, even watch it. I didn't see those years. Really? Yet. I did later on when we were doing compilations and stuff like that. I'd hear about it and I'd know about it or occasionally I'd go pick up a pizza and it was on. But it, it was not – it would have been too difficult for me. So it would have hurt. Yeah. Yeah, to not be in a game after you've left, the, you know, it's you just either. For me, it's either you do it 100 percent or you're not doing it. At what point did you realize you wanted to come back? Because for people listening, they 
you were gone, I think, five years. Yeah. You actually did the new show for, what network was that? uh, 84. Which one did you do that for? NBC, okay. Yeah, yeah. And that was a primetime variety show, and that got canceled, and then all of a sudden you were back. Yeah, right. Um, It's not quite that sequence, but it's close close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was out, um, I went to work on... uh, uh, with Steve and uh, Steve Martin and Randy Newman, you make movies. Yeah, and we did. Uh, we were doing. Uh, uh, I'd done a few. I'd done Simon and Garfunkel in Central Park. I'd done a bunch of. Did a concert with Neil Young in Berlin. I did sort of other things that I was interested in doing, and sort of. And you're too modest to say this, but you you're a hot property when you leave the show. Yeah, I'm going to say you had career options. Yeah. Thank you. So you took advantage Uh, of something. Yeah, so I did that. And also, I'd never, I'd had taken no time off. So I, you know, I built a house in the country. I planted a garden. I did all sorts of quieter things. And then um, I went to work with Steve and Randy on Three Amigos, which was an idea Steve had. And that took the better part of a year. And I loved it because it was the first time in a long time that I've been able to spend long enough on something that could have. Where you could get it right, theoretically, because you never can get it right on Keep SNL. tinkering and tinkering. Yeah, it. yeah. You, can, you can fix it. You can make it better. Uh, as opposed to, and I, you've heard this because it's my cliche, but that we don't go on because we're ready. We go on because it's 11.30. And that's a different reality. It's game time. It's a different thing. You can't ask for an extra two hours. You can't delay the release. You can't, there's no... Hold on, we're not ready. Yeah, no. Yeah. And, and so we're doing it. And, um, and... So doing that was that, and we were starting shooting, and Brian Tartikoff uh, called me because Dick had been doing the show for four years. His kids were getting bigger, and he was done. And Brandon... And the show might have been done. Yeah, and Brandon came to me and he said, we're going to cancel it uh, unless you come back. And I thought... I agonized about it. Wait, well, so he said that in those terms? In those Either words, you come back yeah. or the show's gone. Yeah, but there's no, you know, like there had been like, he said, well, Billy Crystal would come back for 10. And I go, I, that, you can't do that. Yeah. Um, and I went, oh, and I would have, nothing would have made me happier than if they canceled in 1980. When I left, I mean, right. the, the right you wanted that left. to happen. I, yeah. I think I, I didn't really want it or not want it. It was like the writers all left with me, the designers, the uh, 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 cast. So it was started all. You know what I mean. So it was going to be a different kind of thing, and they got they got beat up pretty badly. And deserved it. Their shows yeah. are terrible. Yeah. They have well, not aged well. Yeah. So uh, and, uh, yeah, and I haven't. Yeah. So, but what I was what I was going to say was that. It was only then when, after it had been on for 10 years and it was going to be canceled, that I thought, okay, all right, well, it, and I want to live in New York and it is mine on some level. And so I came back. And that first year back was a nightmare. Uh, it, was a, it was an eclectic cast that yes. actually was looks better on paper yeah, than it, it was yeah, as yeah, a show. Yeah. And even then it looked pretty good on paper. No, what it was was I wanted... Uh, Dick had carried on with a baby boom show, and I wanted to drop down a generation because I thought, uh, as I did with Conan O'Brien, you know, yeah. like you go, all the other people are that. You need to, in order to, you just want a different kind of energy. Take so, a chance on young yeah. and hope it pays off. Yeah, but I went way too young. So I had uh, Robert <laughs> Downey Jr. and John Cusack and Anthony, Anthony Michael, Michael. Oh, yeah. and all that. But, but out of that season, and this is a similar period now. Out of that season came uh, John Lovitz and and Dennis Miller and Nora Dunn. Um, well, then you hit the jackpot the next summer. And then, because but it was easier to add. 
Yeah. You know, adding Jan and Dana and, and, and Kevin. And Phil Hartman. And Phil Hartman. But Phil Hartman I'd asked originally, but he was going through a divorce then, and it wasn't a good time. And 84 was the Olympics out there, and he'd done a show called Chick Hazard, and he'd been working with Pee Wee on that thing. So yeah. he was already 35 or 36. You know, it was like, should I come? And he went back and forth. And then 86, he was happy to come. And, God. Yeah. That, and that late 80s cast yeah. was loaded. And uh, then all of a sudden, you yeah. have a renaissance. Saturday yeah. Live is back. Yeah, yeah. Many times. It's it's had three or four... Uh, People love pouring dirt on you. Yeah, no, I know. It, <laughs> it is... Saturday Night Dead was literally the second season yeah. after Chevy left. And they just... They gave Bill Murray a rough time when he started, obviously. You know, there was a lot of him not being Chevy. Yeah. Critics and, you know, and I went... There's more. And I think that galvanized uh, the cast. Gilda and John and also and Danny all and Lorraine all sorts of people who wait a minute this show was more than just Chevy and Chevy was never saying it was just Chevy but that became like so I think everybody worked hard and by the end of the second season John and Gilda for sure were as big as stars and and then Danny came and then Billy by the end of the fourth season was the biggest star and it's just always that. I'm not I'm not going to ask you the best. Yeah. Cast member ever is because uh-huh. I know you won't answer it. Yeah, but I, I, I do yeah. think when you see these people in person, certain people are like almost have a force of nature. And you right. see it in sports too. Like LeBron yeah. just stands out. Like yes. you watch Anthony Davis yeah. now in New Orleans, it's like, oh my God. Yeah. Would you say Belushi was the ultimate force of nature performer no, you because had? John John was um John then didn't know who he was. He didn't know how to harness it. Yeah, and he, but he also didn't, you know, like he did his impressions. He could do, you know, a, a Brando in, uh, you know, in The Godfather. And so when we were writing over that Christmas break, we did this Godfather group therapy yep. sketch, which was a classic. Wrote. And um, we knew that Lorraine could do that character. We knew, so we were using with what we were working with what we had. And so we went, okay, so it's Don Corleone, he's in therapy, and it's that. And, uh, but John could do it brilliantly. If he had the part, he certainly knew what to do with it. You know, but, uh, and his Dreyfus. Uh, and the Jaws guy, was great yeah, Dreyfus. It, it was a great Dreyfus. Yeah. And, but the thank, but it was the thankless role. The real role was the shark. And O'Donoghue and Chevy wrote that, the land shark thing. Yeah. And then just that shark coming in and also the fact that the shark was only marginally smarter than, you know, like, <laughs> went back to Candy Graham the second, you know, after, you know, like, because he didn't have another move after that. And it was just, it was so many different kinds of sensibilities all working together. They're all within the same piece. So you have a brilliant Dreyfus. Uh, you have a, you know, the goofiness of a land shark. Yeah. You have Lorraine's just absolute, you know, credulous yeah. thing of like, oh, okay. Yeah, and yeah. falling for it and getting eaten. Uh, and uh, Chevy's, you know, uh, doing the voice of the shark. So it sounds know? like you like Soto Belushi the most. When uh, he's like, because I agree with you. I thought his, like, the Dreyfus when he would do yeah, that yeah. or Captain Kirk. Like, he oh, was yeah, actually no. surprisingly Oh, no, no. Great he could, John w- could really act. Yeah. And, um, and he could really, when he did Cocker with Cocker, first he did Cocker alone on the show. And... We, you know, no one thought Cocker would be around now, but uh, he is. And, uh, yeah, and when they did it together, you kind of went, it's the same as Dana Carvey doing Bush. 
there was a, a moment after Dana had done President Bush for a while where when you saw the actual President Bush, he didn't sound as much like President Bush. As, 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 as Dana Carvey's President Bush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of go, and, and, and you know, in a certain way, Daryl's Bill Clinton has that. You sort of, after a while, you go, and you have to you have to find a way in. It can't just be an impression. You have to get something so basic. Chevy made zero effort to look like Gerald Ford. Uh, it was just stunning. I said, you're not going to, no. Um, but those but, are the best impressions, right? You take a point. piece of yeah. somebody and you blow it out. And, but you got to have the confidence to actually know that you can pull it off. Yeah, you know. And um, you know, Chevy, I think in March or April of that first season, handed an opening of uh, it just said me being funny, and I went, "Okay, I'm going to need a little more than that." But still, it was. We both trusted each other enough that we knew what it was going to be. So Belushi was at least the biggest force of nature person off the off the show. Yes, I guess. storming your office. I think he had he had, uh, you know, John. Sort of, I, I used to say he lived his life in three eight hour shifts. And if you were with him for one of them, you thought, "Well, I'm tired. I'm I'm, I'm exhausted." It's time to go to yeah, bed. Yeah. And then a whole other group of people uh, had that experience. And I think, you know, in the very early days of the show. There was a limo, which was for the host, because the host was not being paid any money. So that we we made the decision to uh, make the week in New York like a great week for them, because uh, they were you know they were doing us a favor. And uh, at the end of the party, uh, John would, if the hosts were leaving, John would somehow. <laughs> make his way to the host table and then uh, find out where where you're going. Oh, I'll drop you. So he'd... He'd steal the limo? Yeah, he'd take the... He'd drop the host <laughs> at the, you know, at the Berkshire house or the Essex house and then uh, he'd drive around the city in the limo because fame and stardom were uh, what he wanted. I think he had no ambivalence about it. It was uh, uncomplicated in the way... and. Like anything else, you know, uh, from Icarus on, if you fly too close, you tend to get burned, you know? Right. Yeah. And you had that famous show when the Rolling Stones came. Yeah. And it kind of became Belushi versus the Rolling Stones yeah. off the, out of the building. Yeah. The problem we had was we went to watch them rehearse uh, at SIR, like, after blocking, which was like midnight. Uh, and they rehearsed to like five in the morning and, and kind of... Blew out their. They blew their out. Yeah, they yeah. kind of shot their wild. Yeah, but they were showing off for us. We were showing off for them, and so we we stayed late. It was just, and when you actually saw the performance, you realized, oh, this was this is 1978, and there's like 300 people in the studio, and the Rolling Stones are playing. It was just a. Um, there are lots of moments like that. Who do you think, out of anyone, when you're doing this show, what musical act killed it the most? Like, it was depends there... on whether it's new. Do you know what I mean? When you go back yeah. to Paul Simon doing Still Crazy after all these years, the, you know, I opened the show with that, the second show. it's They didn't know the song. They didn't know that. And and there he is in one scene, you know, and unbelievably powerful. And it went to the extent that there was viral in 1975. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It went viral. Everyone knew it the next day. And I would say the most meaningful was Paul Simon post 9-11. No I, still think that's, yeah. I still think that's the greatest moment. Oh, yeah. The greatest moment in the history of the show, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I thought it was, you know, it, it, it was for all of us just 
to walk, to see those people come into the studio, at, you know, just before dress rehearsal, they'd all just come straight from ground zero. They'd all been there since 9-11. And just, and the mayor and the, co- you know, and uh, how are we going to do a comedy show, you know? And, uh, and then I figured out that. There was no real answer for that yeah, question. Right. Well, the, the, I knew I had to break the ice. So I, I wrote this joke for uh, Giuliani of like, can we be funny? Why start yeah, yeah. now? And at dress rehearsal, uh, he he would start to smile because he knew he had a big he was going to get a big laugh, and I'd be doing my line of like, uh, can we be funny? And he was already starting to smile, uh, and I go between dress and I went, Rudy, you can't smile. Yeah, don't you can't on the give joke. away the joke. Right. You know, you have to. You know, I have to be serious, and then you have to be serious, and then say the line. And he got a great on air, but it was just that thing of like. Oh, this is a high stakes joke. If we get this joke wrong, it uh, you know. So you're always worried. It's all tension release. I mean, at some point, you're worried. You're worried. You're worried, and then it just happens. One of the crazy things about that show and a couple other things that happened after now. Not crazy. Yeah. that's the wrong word. But you know, the Yankees they made that run. SNL, you do that show. You have this iconic moment. Very it was much. like these things that meant the most to the city kind of rose to the occasion yeah. at the right time. Even Bush throwing out that ball, yeah, that was you know, and one. throwing a strike, right? You know, uh, and and none of us knowing he had a bulletproof vest underneath. But I do feel like I never really fully realized how much SNL meant to the city. Yeah, until that, I'm sure you realized that way. You before know, then. it was interesting in the '70s in particular. Um, we were not we were not considered a New York show. We were much more a Chicago show. Our ratings were always twice what they were in New York or L.A. in Chicago. Chicago, the middle of the country, really supported us. And um, I remember I was doing a movie in the western, the rural part of Virginia, in coal mine territory, and and there was a Holiday Inn, uh, which was the, the for 100 miles, like the only place that, you know... Uh, at any form of entertainment. And they had a big screen TV, and the two big nights were Monday Night Football and SNL. People drive in and come watch it, and you realize, oh, I see. So it, it isn't, you know. And I make the point all the time, particularly to stand-ups, you know, uh, who have an, a more narrow base. I go, you know, we're on in all 50 states. We're broadcast. And uh, right now you have 15 states uh, that support you totally, and you've ignored the other 35. So you can just keep playing to those 15 states, but this is a moment you could make the adjustment and uh, introduce yourself to those other states. Uh, So it's always – there is a different – you know, and I'm going down with the ship on broadcast, but – it is a different thing. You're on podcast. God knows where that fits. In. Right. But, you know, like, but you know what I mean? It's like you're doing a show for everyone in the country, well, you know, and you're going to, and that's what a variety show is. It's a big tent show. You're going to have music and politics. And if you're bored with this, we'll wait, wait a little longer to be that. It is not going to be the same thing one after another. You know? I think it's insane that you have the most influence you've ever had. Right now, you're doing the Fallon show. You're yeah. doing that. I mean, you're basically yeah. like their entire late night. Yeah, and we have to wrap it up on that yeah, note. Okay. But the last thing I wanted to say was, yes. um, I, I asked a couple of people like, "How long do I think Lauren's going to do this?" And yeah, and the consensus was, he loves it. He doesn't. 
Yeah. He doesn't want to wrap it up yet. But is that fair? I think that's fair. I think, you know, I, the joke I used to do was I'd say, you know, like there will be a time when I realize that I, it can't be as good as it used to be and that I uh, can't, I don't have the the focus or the, the passion to do it in, in the same way and that the quality will suffer. And then three years after that, I'll leave. You know? <laughs> that's a great ending. Yeah. Laura Michaels, thank, thank you. you. Belated You're happy welcome. birthday. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. a pleasure. Thank you. you a too. truth throw. Thank you. Thank you for downloading the BS Report with Bill Simmons. Too much fun. Check out more podcasts at the iTunes Music Store or at Podcenter at ESPNRadio.com. Peace out.